Welcome to the Greg Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas change the world. One of the things we've seen over the last couple of years is um, trying to get to the root cause analysis. Anything from active shooters to uh, the baseline performance metrics of our programs to how we lead a company. What, what is the root cause? And uh, a gentleman I met quite quite a few years ago and who ended up being one of our keynote speakers at the Great Conversation was a man named Sean Galloway from Proact Safety. And the reason I hunted him down is he was approaching safety from a root cause. And that is it all starts with your culture. How do you think about your people? How do you think about your brand and your company? And I wanted to invite him back. It's been a while since we talked to catch up after this pandemic uh, to see what has changed. Sean, great having you on The Great Conversation. Fantastic to be with you again, although it's virtual, but this is the way things are right now. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love it. I, 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 I don't know if I ever want to go back to, to physical. Virtual is uh, such, just gives me the one plus one equal 20 kind of thing, right? You can get so much more done in a day where I used to travel on the other side of the world for a two hour meeting. You can have six of those two hour meetings if you need to. I guess that's a long day, but no, it's in traveling right now. It's I, I'm, I still have to do some of it for the work that I do, but I I've really enjoyed being able to spend more time with the family and still make a difference in the world. Well, where, where you add value is in your interaction with leaders and their teams around the cultural imperative of their business, which includes safety and security and so forth. So So using Zoom technology today and Teams technology, how's that working? How are people taking to that? I've been pretty surprised. Like you, I do a lot of work in the strategy space, but around culture and around occupational safety. And I have a company, we're finishing it up right now. They are one of the most global organizations, 100,000 employees. And 14 months ago, had you told me, you know, it's possible to set strategy for global enterprise using remote technology. I would have thought you're crazy, but we've been able to do it. And now there's some challenges with trying to get the interaction. But if you have the camera turned on, if you're already a good facilitator, it's been fine. And it it's allowed us to, I think, do a little bit more with less. And that's where things are going. And a lot of companies, you know, just with the whole labor pool being significantly impacted where everybody's trying to do more with less. So having the flexibility that people can retain their jobs and still work at home and still be value contributors. I think, I I don't see that we're going to get back to how things were for at least, at least several years, but hopefully not. Cause I, I, like you, you can accomplish so much with this new technology and it's not going to go away. Well, I, I tell you what I do miss, and I know you can do it with these digital technologies, these conference room technologies, but still I miss the tangibility of that whiteboard in the room. I just... Oh my goodness, I know. <laughs> or, or the paper hung on a wall with moving sticky tape around. And There you go. Yeah, it, it, we're, most of us are visual learners anyways, and, and not being able to then put our hands on that. And yeah, it's been difficult, but... I'm busier now than I've ever been in my entire company's history. So, well, let's rock and roll here. Let's start with defining terms. Uh, since we are, you are focused in safety. What is safety, Sean? 
Yeah, the, the work we do, as you mentioned, is, is largely around the culture and companies tend to engage us when they're on the path towards excellence. So we don't, we don't typically touch the, the basic foundation pieces. But when you, when you answer that question, what is safety? I think it's quite relevant in the security world as well, because safety is three things. Safety is knowing the risks, knowing what precautions to take to control those risks, and then regularly taking those precautions. If you build it out a little bit more though, there are two types to each one of these. There are, so knowing the risks, there are big risks. Now over the last 10 years or so, we started using the term SIF, S-I-F, which stands for serious injury fatality types of risks. But I've used the word big because it's easier language to understand. These are the things that like with your grandfather, you know, being a line worker, you, you touch the high voltage lines that that's largely going to be at nine times out of 10. So that's a big risk. But there are a lot of risks that are common to the task, like don't put any part of your body where your eyes haven't previously scanned. We call that eyes on a path. So they're big risks and they're common risks. So then do we know what precautions to take? Well, in the safety world, we don't say pretty please lock out, tag out, pretty please de-energize that piece of equipment before you're working on it. That's something that's actually, it's, it's mandatory. So there are required precautions to address the big risks, but a lot of the things that fall into the common risks are outside of the control of rules, policies, and procedures, which only goes so far anyway. So they're at the discretion of the workers. So then we look at are we regularly taking these precautions? We have to control the required things that address the big risks, but a lot of what's left, which is the harder part, and that's coaching and influencing, the things that are at the discretion of a worker that address those things that are common. So safety is both controlling the required things, but a lot of it has to do with trying to influence. Because of course, what people do when the boss isn't around is, is a part of what all cultures have to deal with. Well, you know, it's interesting. By the way, I really uh, encourage our listeners to go to your your uh, website. There's a lot of great resources. In fact, a recent article really talked about influencers in a culture and why that's so important to identify those. They're, in a sense, your guiding coalition to cultural change. Absolutely right. Uh, uh, this discretionary risk, though, that's that's fascinating. What what I read into that is you're going to focus on the dollars, a dollar. Just stick with me for a second, and and that's your major risk category. Let's let's talk about that. That's your major risk category, and that's where it's under the purview of the law of the regulatory uh, agencies and so forth. Um, but you might have what really are optimization profit revenue leaks going on in the discretionary risk area that actually could be bigger than that is am i reading that right yeah i think i mean there's a systems component to this in and if i'm following your logic we put processes we put systems in place to try to control the variation of that but a lot of the things that are truly the issues that are keeping people up at night or are just the constant issue are those things that fall out outside of that. And you don't want to try to systematize everything that's out there because you can't do that to humans. <laughs> We're such an uncontrollable variable. And But, but I think you should. I, I think, you know, we, we need to try to put as many systems as we can. But my goodness, there's so much that influences people to do what they do that it's very easy. Somebody might, might 
end up doing something outside of what the system is supposed to control. Well, that's what I'm fascinated by your approach. Uh, I was talking to uh, Sarah Powell, who is emergency, um, uh, the emergency manager at uh, Temple University. And we are talking uh, literally about the same thing. And she goes, you know, at the end of the day, what we need to teach them most of all, yeah, we've got our systems, our processes, our procedures, but we need to teach them a, a risk and resilience mindset. And if we do that, oh my gosh, it changes everything. Well, what we often say is that we all take calculated risks. We're just not all good calculators. Yeah. So the issue is a lot of those things that are out there are the high probability. Let, let me let me propose this conversation another way to address what you're saying. There's high probability risks that are out there, and that's why we put those systems in place. Because if it fails, it fails big and bad. But there's a lot of things that are out there that are low probability. And low probability risks fly under the radar of common sense and experience, which outside of systems are what most people use to try to get their job done. So when an event happens, most of the time, people meant to be doing what they were doing. They just didn't mean for it to turn out the way that it did because we can't see things that are a one in a thousand risk, a one in 10,000 types. We can see a one in six, a one, you know, six shot revolver, put one round, spin it, point it at your foot. We can do that math. Once you start getting past that, though, the ratio is way too often. We just can't see those things. So a lot of what the language we use is what's the difference between a master at chess and an amateur at chess, aside from the ability to win, it's the ability to anticipate and see multiple moves ahead. You have people like Bobby Fischer, I believe it was 1950, grand champion, played 50 games at the same time, 147, tied two. And I've always thought there's politics at play because he lost to the organizer of the event, but he played 50 games. And that's what we're largely trying to do is help people think ahead. I call it maturing the safety excellence thinking or perhaps maturing the security excellence thinking that the more we can help people frame their mindset and in, in, in medicine and science is part of the brain called the reticular activating system. And it's not a physical feature. It's what controls all your sensory inputs. And when it comes to risk, those low probability risks, our brain for the sake of efficiency starts to filter those things out and worse because we've allowed success in my world, occupational safety to be defined by the absence of events. People start thinking, well, as long as you don't get hurt, it must be safe. So your brain based on the flawed definition of success has contributed unintentionally to people starting to filter it out. So we have to retrain the reticular activating system. We have to help people see hazards and risks differently, especially if they've already been exposed to them and nothing bad's ever happened. So it's a dilemma. It's that, it's that old saying, you know, yeah, I lose a nickel in every transaction, but I make it up on volume. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, you said something intriguing a few minutes ago. You said, most of all, your firm gets involved in at the point where a firm wants to create a path to excellence in, in their safety culture. Did I read you right? That's correct. We are, from time to time, brought in when a company thinks they're already there and newsworthy events have happened, and they want to go in and say, is this a systemic issue? Is this something that's permeating throughout 
our organization or was this just a really bad situation that happened at one time but most of the time and that's usually we're often engaged by attorneys and, and those types of things but most of the companies that engage us are they want to be better they're already doing a lot of wonderful things they just get to the point where they realize you can't keep throwing programs at problems we have to think differently if we want different results so i i've just been very privileged to work across all major industries and hundreds and hundreds of projects around the world that my ability is to help kind of cut through that noise and see things a little bit differently but also i've been involved in the change of how to how to improve upon those existing issues of communication and trust and the hazard and risk identification capabilities or deficiencies it uh I don't know if you have this tool in your website or tool in your toolbox, but if uh, we were to give my community uh, a set of questions, you get to determine how many that will help them kind of self-evaluate whether they are on that path to excellence or not. Uh, do you have something like that today? And if so, can you give, it, give me a glimpse of it a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So two things. One is we have developed over the years a safety maturity index for you to be able to determine where you're at. Now, there's a couple of old models that have been used for years that were never designed to really look at group dynamics, uh, like one of Covey's old models, for example. But it was never prescriptive enough to state this is what you do to move to the next stage. So we look at strategy and, and there's four different components that you're moving from and to. And it's on our website, Safety Maturity. You can find our, contact me if you don't want to hunt through all, all the content on there. But there's a link to a couple of articles and we're happy to provide that as a, as a tool for somebody to self-assess the leadership style, the competency within the culture, how the, in my world, EHS, environmental health and safety professionals are viewed. Are they viewed as the grunts or the guardians or the gurus? You know, just give them the paperwork, they manage it. And they, we're delegating safety because we're not really committed to it. <laughs> or the guardians, you know, they're shepherding and overseeing the programs. Or they're like our general counsel. They don't run the business, but they're the subject matter experts that we bring in to make sure we're making the right decisions. So there's a lot of things that we look at, and that's one way for you to determine kind of where you're at and what to focus on. The other is we've created a tool. So I, Terry and I have written a lot of books, and two of them have to do with strategy around safety excellence and strategy around culture. Because of that, we started receiving dozens and dozens, if not a hundred small project requests. Hey, would you look at our strategy? Tell us the, you know, are we looking at it the right way? Can, you know, is it doing what it's intended, intending to do? And it, it was great. So it gave us exposure after already writing the books and looking at all the strategy out there. It gave us even more of a well-represented, you know, what people are currently deploying around occupational safety and culture. And, but quite frankly, we, we just got tired of all those projects. So instead, we created a tool for an organization to self-assess the efficacy of their strategy. Do they have the right components, the right ingredients? And are they thinking about it the right way? Is it involved? Is it operationalized in line leadership versus again, being delegated out there? Do we have a clear vision of what success looks like? And that's different than the absence of failures. So we created that tool. No data gets sent back to us. It's a way for them to look at where they're at and then help 
build out a simple strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats model after that. But yes, we, we do have that. I love that. Not only uh, the maturity index, which uh, allows you to assess your readiness to be on the path to value, but then an assessment tool to actually see how effective the programs you have are. I, I love that. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we'll make sure I put a description, as everyone knows, on every podcast. If you send me that link to those resources, we'll make sure that's in the description within this podcast. Um, if I have a cultural problem, if I do a self-assessment, realize I have a cultural problem, what is kind of the classic approach you would take in helping them mitigate that problem? What, what can they do? Well, I love that you said, if I've self-assessed, I think that's because you know, quite frankly, I do so many culture assessments and you can't help but be a little biased that if they're bringing an outsider in to do this, they already fear they're not going to get the right answer. So by default, trust in or trust and communication are going to be an issue there that you realize you're probably going to have to deal with. So culture change happens best from within. And when you develop a plan, that plan has to articulate the vision of what success looks like. And I'll give you a couple of examples. In 2020, it became real popular with many of our clients. We define success culturally by five by five by 25. It's a nice little tagline. What that meant was we will be successful in the year 2025 because you have to have a longer time horizon than one year. And, and even though you may have a five-year plan, realizing there will be things that will work against you. So you have to revisit that every single year, but a long-term plan. So we know that this isn't some program we're throwing at things. This isn't some training initiative we're sending people to. We want to plan just as us. We have a plan to grow our market share, our market capitalization. So the market share flipping that inside is the attention share of the workforce. What are we doing to capture their attention and get a return on that attention? We're getting more engagement, more ownership. So you have to create that plan. And the plan has to cast that, like some of our clients, when these five beliefs become common, when these five behaviors become common, because culture is not only the way we do things around here or why we do what we do, it's what's common among a group so more academically, it's beliefs that govern behavior. So that's why everybody has a culture. Everybody has a security culture. Everybody has a safety culture. Yet there's really no such thing as a security culture. There's really no such thing as a safety culture. Even though I wrote a book that that's in the title, it's an aspect of the occupational culture or the country culture or et cetera. So you have to define what success looks like, but then you also need data that says where you're at against that ideal. What aspect if we focused on? And if we don't have good data or we're using insufficient data, like perception surveys are very insufficient data by themselves because they're actually a lagging indicator. They only tell you what you know, what exists today. What's leading to that is what's driving those perceptions, what experiences, what stories, because that's what you focus on changing to change the byproduct that is perception and the byproduct that is culture. But how do you go about it? Well, through ownership, through involvement with other people. I love the great quality guru, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, who was sent over to Japan with, with Duran to help the Japanese and improve their quality. And us here in America, we didn't really listen to them till about the late seventies, early eighties. And that just started kind of the quality movement in America. But Deming had a fantastic principle. People support what they help to create. People support what they help to create. So if we can have 
people involved in the creation of the type of culture because we already have a culture is it the one we want and there's a lot of companies that have a lot of wonderful pride with the culture that they've already established but the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again expecting different results so will the culture we have today carry us to where we're trying to go tomorrow and herein lies one of the biggest problems we often don't have alignment with the executive leadership on where we're going tomorrow with our culture, with security, with safety, we haven't clearly defined what success looks like. And when we haven't defined that, or we don't have alignment with what that looks like, not just in results, but observable terms that explain the results, it's no wonder we end up creating all these multiple cultures as those leaders' values and edicts cascade throughout the organization. So it's kind of not to be trivial. If we're not on the same page, we gotta create the page. Well, in your in your uh, in your papers, your blogs, and so forth, you do talk about uh, the macro culture and the subcultures within that macro culture. And uh, and uh, but you said something just a, a minute ago. You you brought up stories. Is culture at the end of the day a organization of stories of what we tell ourselves who we are and what we should be? It is because cultures. So values are created when beliefs are reinforced at or near the point of decision. So the closer we can embed the ideal experience or story or communication to when somebody's going to be making that decision with lack of oversight or whatever, that's how you create strong cultures. Now, the problem is we're only talking about safety or security you know, one time every week for the hundreds of times we're talking about production or operations, or whatever else, unfortunately, priorities are created based on the frequency. So I say yes to your point because it's the stories we tell ourselves. So I decided to do this. Here's my experience. This is now what I believe. So it's my own self-talk. But then it's also like, like you, I trust you, Ron. And if you're going to tell me this is the way that we really do things around here, written or unwritten rules, if I see that now, I'm going to send my eyes on a mission to go see if that's true or not. And I'm going to look for evidence that refutes or supports that. And when I see that, that reinforces that self-talk. And this is the challenge you find often with culture is whomever has the loudest voice shapes the storytelling. Now that could be an individual that I don't care what anybody else tells me, this is this is what I think and what I know to be true. Or it's that person that is either perpetuating the desired beliefs or that citizen against virtually everything, that cave person that's trying to naysay things, but they're very influential. So it is a collection of stories and that's why cultures change in those day-to-day -day experiences and in those stories. It's uh, what drives this home is just a few minutes ago before we got on the line here, um, I was mentoring a young professional and uh, I was saying, what is, he wants to be a leader. I said, tell me what the elements of good leadership are. And, <laughs> uh, and he said, confidence. And then as we talked further, I realized he wanted to get promoted, but he didn't necessarily have confidence in the purpose, vision of the company, and whether they could grow appropriately so people like him could grow with the company. And, mm -hmm. and isn't that interesting? Here's Collins, the leader, and he doesn't, and he didn't realize it. I didn't underline it for him yet, but he doesn't have confidence in the leadership. So back to alignment here. If at the CEO level, the C-suite level, 
we have a true vision, an empowered vision and outcome where we've communicated to a highly engaged culture, then we will see alignment in those areas like security, like safety, like HR, like finance, all across the board, wouldn't we? We would, but but one of the issues, I don't want to call it leading indicators necessarily, we tend to, as humans, measure success based on results, which we're all held accountable for results. And we then, therefore, default to this management style of managing by exception, or if we're not getting what we want. So we end up with cultures of working really hard to fail less because the feedback we get is primarily when there's failures, but not a lot of positive reinforcement. I joke with audiences sometimes, we all know the importance of positive reinforcement, especially for married or have children. But for some reason, when we come to work, we just forget about it. I mean, how many, how, how many of you are just so sick and tired of all the positive feedback you get at work? Isn't it annoying, right? So th- there's one issue is, is how the leadership style tends to lead towards results. But the, the other problem is, or the biggest opportunity for alignment is when we define success in performance terms or i.e. behavioral terms, then not only can you coach for it, which is what you need for alignment, not just accountability from the negative side of things. You have to have a balance of consequences. What happens if people are doing what you want and what happens if they're not? So you have to have that balance there. But if you can define success in performance terms, behavioral, that means it's observable, it's coachable and it's measurable. And one of the guys that helped us start our firm many years ago, and then he quickly left and started working for IBM because they gave him such a fantastic uh, package was, his name is Dean Spitzer. He wrote a great book back in 2007 called Transforming Performance Measurements. It was a book that was a huge catalyst event for how I measure things differently now. But one of the things he said in that book is the reason companies don't get what they want is because they're not measuring what they want. And think about it, we tend to measure what we don't want. And that was the Deming principle too. You can't manage what you can't measure. Right, Right. but you have to measure what you want. And how many events did we have? How many almost events did we have? We didn't have any, therefore we must all be secure. We must all be safe. Not necessarily. And this is the challenge that if we have great results and we can't point to why we have such great results, we need to work to manage the luck out of the equation. And that's a big problem in a lot of organizations is then the complacency comes in. Haven't had anything wrong. We must be doing the right things. Not going to happen to us. Our brain filters those low probability risks out. And then one day we're surprised by an event. And I said, how in the world did this happen? We thought we were all doing the right things. Wow. Creating, yeah. Creating a culture based on only performance by results. I mean, measurement by results, creating a culture of, almost a lassitude of the culture that's gonna get you to the next step. So that's, that's really incredible. Uh, we have been in a pandemic now for over a year. Uh, and I asked this question of many people because I'm tired of talking to the pandemic. So I'm gonna change the lens here. What has happened over the last year that has accelerated changes in your field, in your endeavor, uh, and uh, hopefully for the better. What, what, what has accelerated during this time, this inflection point in our industry? I think of a, a few things. Number one, the safety professional 
has had a seat at the table that in a lot of situations they haven't had before that proverbial seat at the table because they've been thrust into business continuity decisions how do we stay open how do we reopen and you can't do that without those health considerations today so that's been a problem for a lot of ehs environmental health safety professionals usually they're bucketed together like that because most people that are in that role not everyone comes up through the environmental or the safety space not through the health space so they've been thrust to better understanding that whole important component of it and i, I think there's several mitigation techniques that companies have put in place because of all this that will likely stay going forward. So there's one piece that they've been more involved in the strategic decisions as they should be at the right level. The, the H piece being a key thing and having better awareness for now the whole, the whole person. Now there's a lot more talk I'm finding with organizations about the whole person, about mental health, about everything, because all of this has a huge impact, as we all know, on the mental health of, of many people. So there's been a, a greater focus on that. The next one I would say is focus in. For a long period of time, most companies do what I call focusing on rather than focusing in safety. So we want safety to be a priority. We got to talk a lot about it, do a lot of things. We want it to be a value. Well, it can't just be the safety professionals. Everybody has to have a role in it. Well, now it's not enough just to go out and be focused on. We need to focus in. We need greater specificity. What are the most important risks we need to be paying attention to? What are the things at your discretion? What one or two things, because we have less people, still a lot of work to do. How do we keep the most important thing, the most important thing? So we need a greater focus in on that. It's been so glaringly obvious to many companies that are paying attention to this, how poor their communication is in safety, because they do a lot of talking to people. And you've had meetings that have gone away. You have town halls that go away, opportunities to have dialogue with employees. A lot of companies are, quite frankly, using that as an excuse. Well, we can't really talk to them. So, And they're seeing these issues become so much more obvious. And you have to get creative and finding creative ways to get information to and from the workforce and leadership. I think that I'm hoping will carry forward because I've seen some really creative things. And then I think more recently, what's going to be an impact of this that's not a very um, welcoming topic to a lot of people is that's going to be an increase in automation. I know so many organizations that are struggling. I, I could name you 30 right now, but of course I won't, that are having significant problems getting people to come to work right now. One site that I'm working with, the the, the amount that they're receiving through stimulus is averages out to about $15.93 an hour. The starting wage at this particular plant is $15.50. So therein lies the issue. They just can't get people to come in. So a lot of these companies are looking at the uncontrollable variable that is human and saying, we might need to look at, relook at the ROI of moving towards automation. And that's going to change things drastically as it has in several areas like Ohio and the old steel and rust belts and everything where they've, they're now having to educate the workforce so they can work with more automation where it used to be more manual processes. So I think that that, that impact on just the labor pool is going to have a huge long lasting effect. This is runs on predictability. And when predictability is missing, entrepreneurship raises its head. And uh, I think you're right. I think we're going to see more automation and escalation and automation across every sector. 
and then uh, and then we're going to have to get created at, at a creative at a societal level and a government level and what that means for the next generation workforce. So it's going to be interesting. Um, Sean, at, uh, when we first got together, I um, was pitching you on I felt many of the things you were talking about intersected with the risk resilience and security industry where I was spoke heavily focused at the time. Um, and it proved to be true. And you were one of the most successful keynotes we'd ever had at the Great Conversation. Uh, and the way you were talking today, it just dawned on me, you know, if I as a company wanted to go through cultural change, I'd probably talk to Sean Galloway. But that isn't your discipline. That isn't your focus. Um, are you finding people want to take you out of the safety area and, and lead you into a, a more broad scope uh, cultural engagement within the company? Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm not a standard or traditional, I should say, safety professional. I have a military background, I have an engineering background, I have an operations background, and I was a little bit of a safety background in the beginning. But primarily, I look at problem solving. I look at, and what I'm passionate about is culture, and I've had some events happen to close friends and family and firsthand been on fatality investigations that I, I just... I've dedicated my life. My, I was running on a treadmill in Baku, Azerbaijan, keynoting the very first safety conference the country had ever had, listening to a TED talk by a German fellow on, on this you know, Apple device and thinking about the global nature. And I kind of landed on my own mission, and that's to continuously challenge the thinking around what is and what isn't excellence and safety. But Ron, the best feedback I get from executives, either in our books or our methodology, that if you take the word safety out and plant in XYZ. This is about how do we improve? How do we develop better strategic thinking and processes? And how do we take the same type of strategic approaches that we focus on growing our business to growing our culture? And all the time, people are asking, can we use this over here? And sometimes I'll facilitate some of those conversations. Other times, I've been so impressed that they've seen how well this works from a safety culture perspective. It is a natural next step to then start using that. And I never go back and say, no, we haven't licensed for that because we try to put as much as possible in the public domain because this is what we're so passionate about. But I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I find the same thing, so do our clients. Uh, occasionally we do work on some of those projects. It's just, I'm passionate about creating new methodology and finding new ways to solve old problems and trying to be that entrepreneurial head that raises up and says, there has to be a better way to do this. <laughs> You have any new books coming out? I yes, I, I can't publicly say what we're doing on that one, but uh, yes, we're still writing quite prolifically, and I'm I, I don't think it'll be this year that, that the next one will, will be out, but most certainly in 2022. Well, let's make sure we have a talk when you can identify it uh, at that time. But this has been a great conversation with Sean Galloway of Proax Safety. Uh, a company dedicated to the safety excellence strategy and execution. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ron.